Hello, kindred spirits, and welcome to Modcast, the podcast of the Ella Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from the beautiful campus of the University of Prince Edward Island. We are so glad you've tuned in. This is Modcast Season 1, Episode 12. I'm your host, Dr. Brenton Dickerson. In our quest to discover innovative scholarship about the life and works of Lucy Maud Montgomery and join imaginative readers throughout the world, we welcome to the microphone our special guest, Bonnie Tulloch. Bonnie is a PhD candidate, a 2018 Vanier Scholar, and 2020 UBC Public Scholar in the School of Information at the University of British Columbia. In 2018, she received the inaugural Elizabeth R. Epperly Award for Outstanding Early Career Paper at the Ella Montgomery and Reading Conference. Her research interests extend from children's and young adult literature to children's and young adult media with a focus on the sense-making practices underlying different forms of storytelling. Presently, she's in the process of completing her dissertation, which explores the relationship between youth, internet memes, and digital citizenship. Previous projects include a study of Canadian children's island fiction and a master's thesis on children's nonsense poetry. Bonnie, welcome to the Modcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so good to talk to you. I kind of admire you since I first saw your presentation back in 2018, so I'm really glad you're here. You're about as far away from me on the same continent, I think, as we can be, right, Uh, in British Columbia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of a time difference right now, so I'm still waking up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is a little little bit early, although we fortunately we do have a little play with that time. So good. It's so good to have you here. And our Modcast listeners are avid readers. We're always talking about books and reading books and pretending to be working while we're reading and things like that. And we like to talk about the books that are on our bedside tables and our desks and stuff. So in Montgomery's world, um, I've just finished the short story collection Among the Shadows, and that's kind of like darker, spookier pieces, a bit hot and cold, although there's this one piece, Some Fools and a Saint, that I think is maybe one of my favorites. Um, and it's a story that could be, I think, a great like period piece horror film, if, if there was such a thing, like a 20s horror film. I'm also uh, rereading The Lord of the Rings on audiobook for the first time, which is nice. And I'm reading Afro-Canadian Afro-Caribbean Canadian Nalo Hopkinson's Midnight Robber, which is like kind of a Caribbean community in a future land and kind of a different dimension. It's really kind of peculiar and very vocal and very, uh, has a really intriguing dialect. So what about yourself? What, what are you reading these days, Bonnie? Well, you know, actually I'm a notoriously slow reader, so I mm. haven't been able to read that much over the past uh, year as I've been doing my research, but I kind of have two, two genres I'm reading. So there's academically speaking, I've been reading a book by Arthur Frank titled Letting Stories Breathe. And it's a a socio-narratology, which I've really been enjoying. Um, But fiction-wise, I read Mary Poppins last fall, which was a lot of fun. And Mm. Anne's House of Dreams over Christmas. Um, I just finished reading the young adult novel Ready Player One a couple weeks ago, though. And that was really, really interesting. Oh, intriguing. I just finished Ready Player Two because Ready Player One's one of my son's favorite books. And I enjoyed Ready Player One. Ready Player Two was a bit... the, The... the frame isn't amazing, but the inside adventures are pretty cool. So did you enjoy the Ready Player One? I did. I was um, uh, volunteering in a class, a high school classroom, and they were reading the book. And so I wanted to 
be up to date with what was going on. And they were comparing it to the the movie. And so it was really interesting as I was reading the book to see all the changes that took place between it and the film. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it's it's fascinating. To, all the 80s references, uh, yeah, it's absolutely. quite a, eclectic and fun, but I got some of them. So that was great. <laughs> right. And you're kind of a transmedia scholar where you're looking at fan culture, reader culture, as well as different media. And so that that's probably a great study because inside the book itself has all these other transmedia things in it right so absolutely really yeah. great um exploration of kind of old and new media and thinking about it from like a historical perspective too yeah yeah, yeah no that, that's really brilliant i think that's a cool um it i think it's a great way in i don't know that it's all like i don't think it's a legend or a classic as far as books go but i think it's a good book for for a generation anyway so and it certainly digs into nostalgia in a pretty hard way <sighs> Yeah, good stuff. Well, uh, so I mentioned before, I saw you give your talk in 2018, and I think you gave the the talk that became the, the paper, or that was the paper that won the Apperly Award. And I remember I, uh, being at the award banquet, and you were the, it was the first time there was an award, and you won the award, and that was really, uh, really neat. It was a neat moment. The the paper, for, for those who, who uh, want to kind of follow it up, it's linked on the uh, Montgomery Studies Journal website is Canadian and Girls, Literary Descendants of Montgomery's Redheaded Heroine. So could you tell us how you tumbled into this study? Like what, what for you is the adventure of discovery in this particular piece? Well, it's actually a bit of a story um, mm. because I, I started an interest in island fiction because of an affinity group I was placed in at the 2013 Institute for World Literature. It was a bunch of, of different scholars coming from um, different specialties. Uh, and we were trying to come together to figure out uh, a mutual topic of interest for a potential panel proposal for the American Comparative Literature Conference. And we decided that we were all kind of interested in island fiction. And a lot of the, the scholars there had come from from islands, uh, from living on islands. And and I, I was thinking from a Canadian perspective, well, we have islands. And then immediately I thought of Anna Green Gables. And um, I was just about to start my master's. So I approached one of the professors at the iSchool at UBC, who's an expert in Canadian children's literature, Professor Judith Saltman, and asked her if she'd be willing to supervise a directed study with me on the topic of, of island literature in Canada. Wow. And from there, I started focusing specifically on the difference between island fiction featuring female protagonists and how it compared to maybe the historical tradition of island adventure fiction that tends to focus on male protagonists. And, right. and through that exploration, I had created a proposal for an Ibby grant and it, I, I won it, which was great because it allowed me to go interview several authors of West Coast island fiction, um, two of whom I mentioned in this paper, Polly Horvath and Kit Pearson. Right. And and that's how uh, I started thinking about some contemporary heroines in relation to Anne, because when you start reading Canadian fiction and you come across other females who are on islands who are spunky, have red hair and um, and kind of challenge our preconceptions of what an adventurous life means, it's, it's almost impossible not to think about it in, in conversation with one of the most famous Canadian children's novels. <laughs> and so is that like, so 
in in your mind, you're you're creating a like a lens of reading, and you're you've got this figure, the Angrel figure, and that's kind of how you define her, right? The you know redheaded, spunky. Um, but it's not just energy; it's also something that she kind of turns upside down inside of us. Is that am I reading that right, or do you want to kind of clarify what for you as an Angrel? Well, I think that when I am thinking about what an Angrel is, it's it's more of a disposition towards uh, life and a perspective about how we approach learning and self-discovery. And I think in Montgomery's novel, the way Anne um, expresses that is through the kind of artistry through which she uh, represents and experiences life. And I think a lot of that comes from how she tells stories, uh, mostly orally, but mm. um, how that opens up opportunities for seeing personal transformation in herself, but also helping inspire it in others. And I think when I'm thinking about the Anne girl in terms of seeing resemblances, I want to be careful because I know that those other heroines are heroines in their own right. So yeah. to just say that they're Anne girls, I don't want to disregard their unique individuality as their own heroines. But what I do see is that resemblance in terms of, of an open perspective and mindset towards the world that is being expressed through artistic form. And I think that that's a cool connection between these contemporary heroines and, and Montgomery's Anne. Yeah. Anne is a maker, a shaper, like a, but she's not just an artist in, in traditional terms, like a writer, or a painter, she shapes whole, whole, her whole world, right. In a sense. Yes, absolutely. The, the philosophy of, of imagination and how imagination can change the way you look at things. I think that's inherent to most artistry, even when we're thinking about various forms. So whether it's, um, writing or if it's painting or if it's baking or cooking or or gardening anything it's it's thinking about uh life through through the perspective of different um yeah different visions of the world yeah nice super nice so well i think i think that really works like in these novels these angirl these these heroines the protagonists the and girls as you kind of picture them they transform their world they challenge things uh, in, in other stories you know they find the adventure solve the mystery you know pop open something in their world or heal somebody or something like that right so there's always they do reorient the world around themselves in that kind of way well what about like in real life so do how do and girls do are you an and girl is that kind of the way you live what well, what is that kind of experience like out in the world i i wonder and i don't like you're not a scholar of the whole world but like what i'm curious about like what it would be like to pop some of these characters out and have them walk down the street with us well i think actually the reason they resonate with us is because there is an element of of lived experience that goes into their creations so recognizing that each of them struggles with the fact that the societies that they inhabit don't always embrace new ideas um, and that they struggle with the fact that it's hard for them to learn to embrace new ideas at different times. And I think that any person who's negotiating the changing world in which we live has that uh, dilemma at some point or another. But in terms of having a positive attitude and an open attitude towards self-reflection and questioning and exploring, but also recognizing that human connection is so important in that process and trying to promote understanding and, and empathy and 
and just, uh, yeah, just the idea that even when we're trying to work things out in different ways, we can still have a sense of connection. And I think that that's something that is expressed in the novels through the way um, these heroines uh, connect with other characters and make friends with people who are quite different in terms of their personality traits. Um, but also one of the beautiful things about that, the, those novels. So, yeah, yeah, I think, I think in, in life we can experience that too. I feel like, um, yeah. Is, is the phrase in, in, um, it's been a week since I've read your piece. Is it atypical artistry? Is that the phrase? Is that one of the phrases you use? Yes. I talk about the fact that, Anne's often described in the novel as being queer or odd um, mm. in relation to kind of the expectations or conventions of the Avonlea community. But then thinking about that in terms of an artist's perspective, artists often see the world differently than other people, which is why their art is so impactful. So in terms of, uh, of Anne being an atypical artist, it's like she's a typical artist because artists are often atypical. But then it's mm. also kind of fun to play with that from the perspective of how Anne relates to heroines uh, that have come in her wake because atypical also means it could stand for Anne too. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of having a little fun with language there. <laughs> yeah, no, and I can see like when you say this, then I can start to kind of fit it into my my own reading, you know, like Stargirl, Jerry Spinelli's Stargirl, or, you know, Lyra from Phil Pullman, who is certainly the heroine of her world, although her artistry is sort of deception, you know, <laughs> that's kind of the way that she makes her world. Or even, um, I can't remember the name of the the leading character in the Wildwood series. And anyway, there's all these kind of female characters that do come to the front for me, even Queen Lucy of Narnia, who just sees things differently than other people see. She sees what others can't see. Um, and that's her leadership skill. So yeah, no, I appreciate, I appreciate the frame. Um, what the, this is a question that comes from someone on our research team. And I think it's a really perceptive question and gets to the heart of one of the things we struggle with a little with a little bit when we read Montgomery is do you think that Anne Shirley remains an Anne girl throughout the entire series? And so that's one of the things I think that we're curious to think about, um, even if you don't answer it definitively. Yeah, that's a good question, because I know that there is a little bit of um, controversy around whether Anne's personality remains the same throughout the course of the novels or if she kind of retains that that spunkiness and that curiosity um, and willingness to change. But in terms of my reading, I think that uh, what is interesting is that while Anne may not always be that character that is challenging convention, her her love of people and her openness means that she is open to personal transformation and her um, prioritization of relationships really, uh, I think, um, stays the same in terms of, of creating opportunities to experience personal transformation. And mm -hmm. I uh, was reading Anne's House of Dreams uh, mm -hmm. because I had uh, read a paper that had mentioned it. And uh, I'd come across a quote that I had never seen before that I thought was really interesting because Gilbert says to Anne, they're talking about what what is a wasted life and what is not a wasted life and how people will have different opinions on um, whether a person has made a good, good use of their time on this earth. And, and Gilbert says to Anne, and some people might think that a Redmond BA 
whom editors were beginning to honor, was wasted as the wife of a struggling country doctor in the rural community of Four Winds. And I just thought that was really interesting because it just showcased Montgomery's awareness that some people might be disappointed with her decision to um, have Anne move into the role of a housewife. But I also thought that was so cool because it also recognizes that that's a conscious choice on the part of her character. And it's somebody who could have pursued something else, but decided that this was the course she wanted to pursue. And I think that that is something that we are all working towards too in, in thinking about uh, fem feminist scholarship and perspectives is not, not um, privileging one course at the, at the disparagement of another. It's being able to celebrate that right to choose and that right to be able to um, make a difference in whatever uh, capacity you, you want to as a woman. And I think that Anne does make a difference. And you see that um, even when she's talking about how she's making a difference through, through child rearing. And I guess it's, I believe it's a line about I'm writing living epistles now or something mm. like that. And oh, I think that, mm. you know, that kind of sticks to what she had always kind of uh, thought in terms of her artistry of, of impacting people. It's like recognizing that people and touching and touching people's lives is the, is one of the most important things you can do. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a sweet answer. And I think, I think you're absolutely right on the kind of the feminist reading, which is so provocative in Montgomery. There's so much kind of for us to take as a trajectory out of that world, you know, towards our own, but you know, two of her, her uh, heroines, you know, Jane of Lantern Hill and Valancy, uh, who's an Ontario heroine, when they are free to do so, they make kind of homemaking in a sense their superpower, right? They end up being uh, shapers, uh, one more casually, one more intentionally, but they actually, when they can do it freely, it becomes a beautiful thing. Uh, and so I think that, I think that's something that it'd be harder for us to kind of wrestle into place today and the, with the same kind of freedom so yeah no that's an intriguing intriguing thing well no i think i appreciate it so i, I appreciate the angrel perspective i think that's good it's helped me kind of think about <clears throat> you know girl fiction and and then in my own strange brain like what that means flipping it flipping it a little bit like what that means for guys in the way that guys work as atypical artists but i don't know well I also want to clarify that I think that when you're looking at the Anne girl as a potential way of reading, it's also, it's more for the purpose of, of recognizing connections in the Canadian context of how the prominence of Anna Green Gables allows us to see how those characters are constructed in conversation with Montgomery's work. Whereas, you know, recognizing that, yes, there's a lot of spunky girls who are open-minded and curious in fiction when we go look from like, Yes, global yes. perspective right but because there are these certain connections in the text that i've mentioned where like it's a redhead she's on an island she's <laughs> facing some of these problems they're invitations to think of 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 these books in conversation with one of the really prominent uh stories that has shaped canadian culture so that's what i want to cool. clarify when we're thinking about Anne girl in relation mm. to fiction it's like you can think of Anne in conversation with a number of works that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to classify them as, as being modeled after Anne, but that they are actually able to um, expand the image of, of what Montgomery created um, because she was inspired by probably works like little women. Right. And, and, you yeah, know, scholars sure. have talked about Josephine March and 
and uh, Rebecca Randall from Sunnybrook Farms. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, just, absolutely. Yeah. Intertextuality is certainly an intriguing thing. What's fresh about Anne is the way that, that I guess the two things, the one that she pops off the page in that moment, and then the way she shapes Canadian culture after is really, is really kind of what you're getting at. Cool. All right. So I won't, I won't push too hard to be an Anne girl myself. Then that's, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Bonnie. That's good. Let's move on to some other, look at other parts of your work here. Oh, wait a second. Actually, uh, speaking of Anne's House of Dreams and pe papers that have won the Epperly Award, I have a few questions about your recent award-winning study. And for those of you guys who don't know, Brenton is the 2020 winner of the Elizabeth R. Epperly Award. And what Brenton doesn't probably really fully know is that from the moment his paper uh, was announced as the winner, the awards committee has been uh, conspiring to get you in the hot seat. Oh, so, well, there you go. So I've lost the microphone already. Have yeah. I? So if you don't mind, I'm going to just take over for a while and uh, ask you some questions. Well, this is good. So now I can figure out how to get somebody else off off topic instead of always trying to keep people on topic. That's great. <laughs> oh, is that right? Is that how it works? Oh, okay. I don't know. Good, we'll see. Yeah. Good to know. It's my first time hosting. Mm. So uh, before we speak about your paper, though, I think it'd be nice for listeners to learn a little bit more about you and uh, what your academic background is. So do you mind just talking a little bit about what your main research areas are and interests? Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's good. I, d I don't know that I've ever done that here. I come... I come into Montgomery studies as a religious studies scholar, which is uh, not unique, but I think different at the level that I'm working at. I'm a theologian. I think about how we understand ourselves and the world and, and God within a particular faith perspective. Um, and what I do with texts is uh, I actually, I started uh, doing this with sacred literature. I was always intrigued by the, the way that the author creates like a fictional world inside which things happen. So not just the, the characters and the words and the plot line and things like that, or even just the atmosphere, but the whole thing structured together. And so when I come upon a fictional world, I pretend that I've like discovered it in the sands of the desert, uh, an old civilization, and that these are the literary remains, but, but they're not just literature, but the things in the text are real. So I discover this whole world in the desert. And so what I do is I study all the different elements of the text to try and figure out like, um, you know, so, so sociology and the way that families work and the way that people relate and what their sacred texts are, what their beliefs or their sciences are, uh, whether there's magic and what that magic means and, and what, whether there's other kinds of people like them or different than them. And I look at those things and then uh, I don't just, I kind of chart them and think about them the way that say an anthropologist would look at that ancient civilization, but then I try and restructure them to ask the question, the meaning question. So what, what do we learn about what it means to be human? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about our neighbor? What do we learn about others? What do we learn about life or even the afterlife or something from not just the words and the characters, but the whole structure? of the thing. And so that's that's what I've been doing for some time. And I play with that. That's a little easier to do, right, with a big speculative literature uh, worlds, you know, like, um, you know, Lord of the Rings world, uh, the Middle Earth Legendarium or Narnia or, you know, Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy, which has this whole futuristic world. So it's a little easier to do when it's science fiction or, some, or fantasy where you're playful. With Montgomery, it's a bit more of a 
it's kind of an intriguing challenge. And so uh, because she's writing realistic fiction, but she never really sticks just to realism. She's always playing with fairy. She's always playing play fairyland and, and these other places. She's always playing with the imaginative worlds. And so applying the same kind of question to Montgomery has been kind of an intriguing challenge for me um, um, as of late. And so what I do, what I do specifically within this realm, and there's other people that do what I do, as a what I ask as the question is, what does the text world, what does the speculative world, what does the fiction teach us or invite us to imagine about spiritual life? So I've written a thesis on C.S. Lewis and that question, and I've written on J.R. Tolkien and a few other writers, um, J.K. Rowling, and and so I do that now with with Montgomery as well. I'm asking the question, what do we get from a study of the whole about the invitation of spiritual lives? Wow. Mm. Now I'm curious when you're talking about moving from fantasy worlds like Narnia into mm. realistic worlds like Montgomery's, where there's also such a blurred boundary between fantasy and reality. How do you negotiate that that element of 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 moving from a like an overtly fan, fan, fantastic world to a world that is so shaped by personal fantasy and how you yeah. see it? Yeah, that's it's an intriguing question, and I kind of stumbled in Montgomery studies almost by accident. Uh, uh, my wife and I. Um, our avid readers, we each have our, our toppling bedside table bundles of books, right? That could tumble over in the middle of the night and wake us all up just because we always have things on the go, but it doesn't overlap a lot except in children's and youth literature. That's where it tends to overlap. She doesn't love, she does not like science fiction and, and she just doesn't, uh, she's not interested in the same things that I am. She doesn't want to read a 1500 page epic fantasy, but that's how I want to spend each winter. And so uh, I wanted to kind of connect a little bit more because we do talk about the books we do read uh, together um, and or make each other read when they're particularly good. And so I, she was reading something from Montgomery. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to read Montgomery. And the, the weird thing for me was I hadn't, or I mean, I had read um, Anne of Green Gables in French uh, growing up in, in school or because of school for a project or something. But I, that's not the same when you're kind of made to do it. And I grew up like next door to Montgomery in a sense. I, I, I grew up um, playing in her graveyard. Uh, when we play tag in our graveyard or ghost in the graveyard we actually played and i i did 4-h in the church where where she was um which would have been built just before she moved to ontario and so i like i knew her world it was just maybe too close to actually <laughs> to actually make a connection i never i watched the kevin sullivan and films until the reel ran out until the tape wore out but i never once thought about reading the books and i just never saw any they weren't around where at least with my connections i'm sure they were in the library and so now i'm an adult living in prince Edward island and i'm like well let's maybe discover this and so i read Anne of green gables and it was just like a, it was just a walloping good read right like it was just it was just awesome and then i read a couple of other things and then it was emily of new moon that kind of hooked me and i was like oh yeah that's that's the thing this is kind of an artistry and there's layers here that i haven't seen before and so coming to these texts i've had to do because i'm it's their realistic text at least in the way that they're presented so i've had to do more listening i think to scholars and um entering the field a little bit more, recognizing that I'm somebody peeking in and what, you know, 
I very much want to dialogue with what has come before. So that's how I've approached it, kind of listening. And so it does, there's less, uh, so I'm more attuned, I think, to social um, matrix in a text than I would have been otherwise. So the, this Montgomery's teaching is, or reading, writing has taught me to look at those things a little differently. And I think that, and I think there's something to Montgomery, the way that she works poetically and with like fairyland that I, I tried to get at with a previous paper uh, on Rainbow Valley. And I, I think I hinted at it, but I haven't quite, I haven't quite nailed it yet. So I'm still trying to, to work that out that the answer to that question of how do I flip the frame over? Um, I'm still trying to find something because I, I keep, when I keep reading, I still feel there's something a little elusive about Montgomery, which is intriguing because in a sense, the text's right there. It's not, they're very short texts. They're fun to read. They're often enlightening and they're they're very uh, verbal. um, They're very oral. um, So they're very contemporary sounding. So, what, what's the challenge? Well, the challenge is I haven't quite been able to kind of tighten all the bolts on this just yet, So, which is okay. I think that's good. I think it's good to be a curious, open person on this one. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched on something that I realized myself when I went to the first Montgomery conference is that you, Montgomery scholars come from so many different disciplinary perspectives. And that's mm-hmm. one of the richness like the, one of the rich things about Montgomery um, research is the fact that to be a Montgomery scholar, you don't just have to be an expert on Montgomery, but you can bring your expertise from the discipline that you're trained in and take that and, in your, and apply it in your reading of her work. And it lends itself to so many different interpretations and perspectives. And I think we really see that in this paper that you've worked so hard to create that, um, yeah, was was worthy of uh, the the award this this past year. And just to give some of the listeners a background, do you mind describing it in a in a mm. few sentences? I know it's always a challenge, but uh, maybe yeah. do your best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it is a challenge. Like when you when you write a paper, you're trying to you're trying to write out loud to get to know your own thinking, and so it does take a, a bit of time to kind of. Uh, come around with that, but uh, Anne's House of Dreams, I think, is a it's an intriguing book within the Montgomery corpus, and I think it comes partly out of the context that Montgomery's in. It's nineteen, uh, it's nineteen uh, fourteen, and she's holding her stillborn child in her hands, just as you know, news from the war is coming. And over the next few months of mourning and grieving, she's pulling her poetry together to try and complete a collection of poetry with a new publisher and starting to kind of obsess and worry about the war and really kind of follow it. And, you know, kind of, kind of the way that I followed COVID uh, news when it first, when it first happened, uh, when our first lockdowns came in early 2020 and, and very kind of, uh, it's very deeply personal for her, even though it's far away, the boys from her community are going off to war and uh, her grief is something that she describes as as unique to her experience, a kind of uh, darkness that's just super intense. And what she ends up writing uh, as a as you know as an experiment is an adult Anne. And I know that some of the critics have been don't love the domestic Anne, but this adult Anne actually in the 
and also dreams there's a real kind of struggle that exists um you know there's a there's a character uh who is um has had just all the leslie moore who has all the struggles possible she's had this terrible struggle adult life though she has all these personal gifts that's great uh, there's a, a senior kind of mentor character captain jim who who's full of life and and joy and uh, just kind of a, a miracle character but he's had all this kind of difficulty and there was just a sense in me that i felt like montgomery was trying to point us somewhere in the book that she wasn't even necessarily able to go herself at the time and it wasn't um kind of what what uh when Anne loses the, a baby in the book as well. She has a stillborn uh, or a, a, a baby that dies not long after birth, just like Montgomery did. And the words that Anne uses are echoes of the journals from the period. And Anne talks about how this is kind of a wrong thing, that something's gone wrong in the world. And Marilla is very anxious about this. You know, she's very much trust in Providence. And this kind of thing makes her anxious that, that Anne could be tipping into something like despair, something like turning her back on God, something like leaving the path or making choices that would be bad for her or for, or for their religion. And so she has this kind of anxiety. <laughs> but Anne wants to kind of push back and say, no, like, this is this is there is something wrong there you know here we are in this and the what i find is in walking through all the pain that happens in that novel that there's never a point where montgomery just makes everything okay like it's no the world is actually as it should be it's perfect or it's, you know think about how the first and book ends right uh the last line is god is in in his heaven right and all is right with the world well that's actually not the message exactly of um of this book of Anne's house of dreams when Anne has to deal now in the adult world with all this complexity but it's also not a descent into darkness it's actually not a complete loss to all the loss it's not a complete disappearance in grief and sorrow it's something in between and at one point captain jim's walking and he and ann are had a, a lamp but they turned the lamp off because they found that they had more courage walking in the most dark uh, in the darkness of night than in having a little rim of light around them on the path and jim's point was you kind of have to you got to sort of make friends with the darkness if you're going to to be able to survive it otherwise we make big things of the darkness that we cannot see and that's kind of montgomery's kind of negotiation uh through all of this is that there there's the dark and the light there's the struggle and the sorrow as well as the beauty and the joy and we live both with them and we see this in captain jim's blessing of both leslie moore and and uh near the end of the book you know uh there will be you know, sorrow and pain, but there will also be joy and happiness, both. Um, and that's what Montgomery wants to do in this book, I think, is, is keep all that somehow together. Um, yeah. So that's kind of what I was playing with there in that book. Well, thank you for that that summary, because there was so much, uh, so much there in your paper. And one of the things that I found really interesting was the argument you were making about harmonization, because mm. Epperly's own reading of Anne's House of Dreams you point out uses the metaphor of <laughs> harmony to talk about how those different elements you just pointed out um, come together in a sense of unity in the novel. But then you kind of also 
push back in terms of that exploration of can light and darkness actually harmonize? And I think if, if I'm reading your paper correctly, you make the point that they stay separate to a degree. And to a degree, yeah. To a degree. And there's that that process of of making friends with the darkness doesn't necessarily mean reconciling it completely with light. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I would love to like hear you explain a little bit more about how that's possible. Like how do we reconcile the fact that darkness might never be one with light with the light, but also yeah. we can somehow still manage to accept it in some way? Yeah, no, that's good. It's actually, it's, it's a bit of a scary paper for me because what I chose to do, so uh, Elizabeth Apperley, who don't, who's named, this is the named award that Bonnie and I are the, I guess the first and second recipients of this, and there'll be a third and fourth coming up in the next couple of years. And so, you know, she's a really important figure in the field. You know, she's a senior scholar. She's pretty strong thinker. And she wrote really one of the more beautifully written books of literary criticism that I've ever read, um, the, the Fragrance of Sweetgrass, which looks at um, Anne novels and Emily novels, and then a couple of chapters on the other bits, bringing it all together, rethinking romance. And one of the phrases she has in the Anne's House of Dreams chapter is, in this novel, uh, which she calls the most um, self-consciously philosophical and poetic of all of Montgomery's works, in this novel, all things harmonize. And it is kind of neat to go through and do a close reading of harmony language throughout the book. She's right. There's all this kind of gorgeous blending of imagery. There's the twinning of characters. There's the bringing together of land and sea and, and all this kind of uh, imagery. So she's right, right? But I had to ask the question, well, how do, you know, there's also all this language of darkness and light and a hundred other words connected to those, including umbra, which we don't often get and uh, things like that. How, do, how does light harmonize? Like, what's the word for that? And I tried a bunch of words, and none of them really fit the novel itself. And by pressing in on uh, Bev, uh, Betsy's, like, good work, like, it wouldn't be worth spending time on it if it wasn't good, but by pressing in on the good work, I was able to trouble her metaphor of harmony just a little bit to see what doesn't harmonize and that there are these places where there's this, these contrasts that aren't blended that do remain. And this is one of the questions. So the, the approach I took was the question of theodicy and that's a, it's a hard question. Why, you know, the kids version that we all walk around with in our heart, why do bad things happen to good people? I think is the question we might ask. In Christian theodicy, it's how does a good God who could do something different um, in individual situations at least allow the kind of world that we have or the kind of sorrow that we're experiencing uh, to exist? It's a question that Montgomery herself asks in her journals, although I think she's a little um, hesitant to fully ask it. And there's a whole kind of school of thought, a series of schools of thoughts. I, I end up discussing them in the paper and talking about the way that people have approached it. But there is, there's an entire school of thought that says that, in a sense, the question's not ever fully answerable from our frame. But what we actually have to do is that live in kind of a certain way that we have evil and we have sorrow as well as goodness and grace. And so what do we do? We live in a certain way in the face of all the different um, 
problems and difficulties and struggles that we have is we actually respond ethically, respond personally, respond in family and respond art artistically, uh, respond prayerfully. So there's the school of thought that that's the way that we respond to these things. And that's, I think, the what Montgomery suggests to us with characters like Captain Jim, you know, who is, I think I call him the the unofficial teacher of the book and, or maybe, maybe actually, maybe Betsy called him that. I can't remember, but somebody did. And, uh, but Anne herself in her own sort of rebellion, right? That's actually a kind of um, preparing to live a certain way by accepting what, what the world is, not denying it and then living well in that world. And uh, it's true. She, in the midst of grief, she doesn't see everything uh, at one point, you know, she said, you know, she, she whispers a doubt about, you know, see, seeing her daughter in heaven who's passed away. And Captain Jim, sa Jim says, no, you know, the, the master will, will do better than that. You know, it'll, it'll be better than you imagine. So there is some nudging forward and some teaching and shaping in the book, but it's largely about figuring out how to live. And it's just super relevant then to that World War context. Like, how do you live in the midst of this crazy world the world the, the world war one broke the world so how do you live and and i think montgomery gives an answer that i think is quite in contrast to say the war poets in britain or some of the novelists here in north america at the time and i think that that question is something we can still ask ourselves in a year that has had so much um trouble and and loss um mm. for for ourselves in the world we're living in right now with the the pandemic and just just the different kinds of uh, political and social unrest that is, is taking place i think that that is one of the powerful things about this paper is that you're reading um about the last century but you're reading it in light of the 21st and so i was wondering if the if you had a particular takeaway that like you came across through the writing of this paper um, that helped you or um, just gave you insight into the situation we're experiencing in terms of how we can make friends with the darkness of, of the past year. Yeah, no, that's good. It's, it, it's, it's an interesting question, Bonnie, because I did kind of have this moment and I didn't recognize it until I wrote it down. Like I said before, sometimes writing is like a discovery rather than just, uh, you know, I, I know this, I'm telling you. I don't, for me, writing's never been that. Just, I know this, I'm telling you. It's always, it's like trying to tell a joke aloud to find out if it's actually funny. Uh, you know, half the time it's not funny. And so you just keep rewriting and writing and writing. And so that's what writing is for me. And so I end up writing a lot in order to get a little bit out. And I wrote this phrase um, in the piece. For the story is essential to tell as a way of concluding a moral action. Telling stories is one of the things we do in the face of evil we cannot understand. And uh, I wrote that, particularly that the, the first part's talking about Captain Jim, how he, he does something morally good and he, you know, he, he, he confronts somebody, he fixes the problem, he, he tries to repair the error in the world, uh, and, then, and then he tells the story to others as a way of passing you know, reshaping the world. And so that was what was in my mind. But then it was that telling stories is one of the things we do in the face of evil we cannot understand. Um, I just found to be a really profound truth that I wasn't able to express except by kind of finding the words coming out uh, on the screen before me. Yeah. That was one of the lines that actually stood out to me as quite profound when 
I read your paper and I remember sitting with it and trying to unpack it myself because it was one of those lines where you know there's a lot of significance in it, but it takes you a while to just actually fully process it because, um, yeah, it resonates on, on a deep level of why do we feel compelled to tell stories as a way of processing our experiences. And I think there was one other line I came to in a recent reading of your paper. I turned back to it a couple of days ago, and it was actually the ending line when you're talking about how um, darkness can actually bridge a gap between friends and this mm. idea that there's almost this redeeming aspect of Anne's loss uh, in the novel because it allows her to share uh, the experiences of Leslie's pain on a deeper level or connect with Leslie on, on a deeper level. And this idea that when we're able to, to talk about and share our stories of pain and loss with each other, there's this element of being able to, to find the light of friendship and community in the midst of, of great pain. Yeah, and I think no, that that's yeah. something that just struck me in terms of your own reading of the novel and and how there can be hope even in the midst of like we're not eradicating evil we're not solving that problem but we're recognizing that we're facing it together and one of the ways we do that is by sharing our stories with each other so that was something that i thought was really quite profound um, oh good yeah no and i appreciate I appreciate that you're saying that, Bonnie, because I have I have that up in front of me, and the peer reviewers had had all noted that as well. The same line that you picked out. Um, I got comments back from the judges panel, and so I didn't know who said them, but but there was someone who had picked that out, and so that was you, obviously, and there was somebody else too, actually, and. And they picked it out, but then they were kind of like, well, what do we do with this? There really was from the peer reviewers, from the professionals reading the paper as uh, scholars of uh, literature and philosophy or religion, they really wanted to find out what I meant by that. That's And each of them said that. And then I realized that I didn't actually have very much <laughs> more to say about it. Like I was kind of, it was, the, it's still just a new discovery for me. I think it's true of myself that I want to tell stories to hold back the darkness. I want to tell stories to negotiate the darkness. Um, and I wrote the line that you just said about the shared darkness can bridge a gulf between friends and transform how we live. But then you're linking of it now by sharing stories, of course, is part that just fills that out for me, actually. So I actually learn more now about what I happen to have written just by your putting it together. And, and uh, so that's really helpful to me to, uh, I wish you were here in the peer review process three, three months ago as we were trying to, I was like, cause that's the thing when you get uh, people who don't know and, and, and uh, Bonnie and I are both on the newish end as, as scholars that, uh, you know, you write a paper and you spend weeks and months on on these papers, and then they you send them to these invisible experts, and who knows what you'll get back? And it's sometimes terrifying, but they're always difficult to respond to, or almost always. And I really wrestled with that for like a whole month about how to put that, and then Bonnie just kind of fixed it for me here and just <laughs> just the well, moment. <laughs> well, I think this is an important. Um, point for for scholars, emerging scholars, and you know any scholars at any age. Sometimes when you're going through this process of writing and and thinking, and and it is a process of self discovery, words will come out, and you'll sense their importance, but maybe you'll you'll lack the ability to fully articulate it in the moment of just why they're so important to you and why they're so important to your thinking about whatever it is you're talking about. Um, but you're unwilling to let those those words go. 
And I think that yeah. that's something that you can hold on to in the peer review process is that when when somebody highlights a line that is really significant to you, but maybe they're questioning whether or not it should be included, um, giving yourself that opportunity to sit with it and to really think about why it matters so much to you and and your paper is mm. is important because you you know those are often like the treasures of a paper. And I think that, um, yeah, in, in the context of yours, I think that was actually, was my comment was just the fact that I just really like this line. That was my, <laughs> that was my comment was that because I feel like it's going to make me think. And yeah. so if it's, a, if it's a line that's making the reviewers think, but it's also making you go back and rethink it. I think that that was a lot of words with thinking in it, but um, yeah. it's uh, yeah. worth exploring further. Uh, well, and, and, and I think in, 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 in the end I did sort of, I made it the beginning of the paragraph rather than the end and sort of linked it better. But in the end, when I wrote back to the peer reviewers or to the editors, I said, you know, I've addressed all the things, but this still may not satisfy everybody. And, and, but this is where it, it, it's at for me. And so, uh, you know, just a way of saying that, um, you know, I may spend a lifetime trying to figure out um, a bit more about this, but I think it's at least clearer and, and hopefully that makes a link. And part of that was rewriting the conclusion, which you, you just uh, read a bit of the new conclusion there. So hopefully I have kind of pulled that together, but that is kind of one of those, <laughs> one of those challenges, right. Is to, to figure out uh, how all these, uh, all these things fit. It's kind of a funny thing, isn't it, Bonnie, this, you know, writing, um, as as a building of scholarship uh, um it's just a it's a weird it's a weird tradition i think well and something that i've been learning over the last few years as i've tried to enter into um getting writing published is really appreciating the feedback from the reviewers because you recognize that that really is an opportunity to feel mentored because you get that perspective of how to shape your your writing into something that will have a greater impact. And it also, each time you go back to it, it does get better. And I think that even when we're having this conversation now, you're seeing things in my work that I might not have seen, and I'm seeing things in your work that you might have seen, but not fully articulated yet. Um, and I think that that's one of the great things about being in a scholarly community is that we're meant to be having conversations. This work is never finished. It's always ongoing and you're always rethinking about it. And even once it's published, you're like, oh man, I just read something that changed my mind about that. And I wish I could go back and, and change that paragraph. But yeah, uh, like, you know, even I, I, thinking about your, your work in the context of, of Christianity and, and that statement about telling stories to, to hold back the darkness, I even think about the fact that in Genesis, the Lord says, let there be light. And yeah, so it's like he's speaking in order to bring light to the world. So there's mm -hmm. this element of like storytelling encompassing, you know, Christian religion as well. So, yeah, yeah there's just so much there. And I wish we had a more time to talk about it because <laughs> yeah. uh, we could. And uh, I'd be really game for that. But I think we do have to to bring this to a close. And yeah, so we should, <laughs> probably should bring it to a close. But is this, uh, think of Northrop Fry, the Canadian literary theorist and literary scholar. And and so he, he writes about the Bible as story. And I think that humans are storied beings. And But I didn't want to get, you know, I didn't want to get into... 
you know, like so sir and like i just didn't want to get into kind of the big theory of of story and human re- reality because a lot of it's still kind of instinctive in me i've grabbed it here and there and it kind of comes out of questions of of my family and my own likes and and spirituality and uh, my work and i don't have it in kind of a cohesive whole just yet and but but that's why I keep, and so I'm going to keep, I'll write something else. I'll keep, I'll keep writing. I don't know what the form of that will be. I, one of the forms that you use is actually, um, you have a blog. It's, uh, is it nonsensicaltimes.com? Is that right? Yes. Yes. yes that is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted me to mention that, but it's actually kind of a nice blog. If folks check it out, it's, it's a well, a well curated blog that comes out of your work, um, I guess, in, in meaningfulness and, and words and stories and stuff like that. So well, as a as a scholar who was still trying to figure out exactly what area I wanted to focus on, I really do like like nonsense and sense making, and I think that it provides a foundation for exploring a range of issues and topics. And it kept things open in terms of of a blog for just looking at what different writers are saying, whether it's in fiction or in scholarly mm. works, and being able to think about it in light of how do I understand these concepts in relation to my experience and the world. And that's really why I went into nonsensical times as, as the title. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think that what you mentioned in terms of, of having to figure out when you, you cap how many ideas you're exploring in a paper is a challenge we all negotiate. But one of the beautiful things about it is that you can have a, a document open where you're like, future future things I want to explore, and that'll take you to the next project, which is yeah, sure. where I wanted to at, like go with my questioning right now. Oh, is yeah, I yeah, wanted to ask you what, uh, what projects are next on the horizon for you. Yeah, no, that's good. Actually... I, I always I'm good at ideas. I'm not always good at like completing the whole thing. And so I'm always for me to finish a paper is always such a big deal. It's it's a the work of a year. But what I have, what I I feel like I have cooking in me in Montgomery's studies is that, that I think I have a, a unique set of questions when it comes to um, spirituality, spiritual theology, religion, faith, and Montgomery. And, and it's one of the things that is not the has been not the most uh, strenuous focus of the field. So we've had some interesting individual studies and historical studies, but I don't know that there's yet been a PhD in religion that has looked at Montgomery uh, in the same way that you know our historians and literary critics and feminist scholars, particularly, uh, as well as the archivists and and some other uh, folks have co- come at it. I mean, anthropologists and all kinds of people have come at it uh, from all kinds of directions, and I think we still have. Some some foundational stuff to do there. And so I, I keep playing, I keep working on that particular thing. Um, and so I have, uh, we have, so we're recording this in, in springtime of 2021. We have in August of 2021 is the deadline for the 2022 Montgomery conference, biennial Montgomery conference. We have to have our paper proposals in by mid-August in 2021. So I'm trying to get that proposal ready and where that fits into everything else. I had a trilogy, the Four Winds trilogy, I call it in my head, of Anne's House of Dreams and Rainbow Valley and Rilla of Ingleside. Well, it's turned time for me to do the Rilla of Ingleside one, but it's a darker paper. I don't know if I have the heart to do it just yet. <laughs> so, so I might, uh, uh, I might do something else. But it's all kind of 
the someday book, I guess, out of it, the, the thing that's I'm ruminating on, the thing that's growing inside of me is a book on uh, Ella Montgomery and spiritual life and looking at various kinds of approaches, but also doing taking the time to do close reading with the text so that we get to... Um, it won't be a full historical piece, but really that question in what does what does Montgomery invite us to imagine about spiritual life? So that's, I think, what's cooking in me. And so I would hope to, that's my, I guess, five-year goal is to, to write that book. So. so when you've totally pieced together that civilization that you're, yeah, you're yeah, exploring right. in your mind, I look forward to that. That'll be very exciting for, for all of Montgomery fans and, and scholars to read, I'm sure. So, so Bonnie, I think we're at the end of our time. Is can I wrestle back the microphone from you here to do our closing, or I'll surrender it. You'll there surrender it. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Thank you, Bonnie, and and folks that are listening in. Bonnie Tillich is uh, um, our 2018 Emerging Scholar winner, uh, named the the named Epperly Award winner, and we're always uh, thrilled to talk to both senior and emerging scholars here on the Modcast. And so, I would encourage you to check out the show notes to find your way to her blog and to the papers she's done. In- including a, a, a newish uh, curated art piece, which is kind of intriguing. So a thoughtful way of looking at things from a new angle. And I would encourage you to watch her in upcoming days because, um, I mean, that's the point, right? Still emerging. So, uh, and good luck, Bonnie, with uh, the completion of your dissertation this year. So. Thank you, and all the best to you, too. Yeah, thank you. And as always, folks, you can check out the work of Ella Montgomery Institute at ellamontgomery.ca, including interactive features, guest blogs, news about conferences, including the one that we mentioned with its own call for papers this coming August 2021, and the newest releases of the Journal of Ella Montgomery Studies, as well as links to digital resources like the beautiful online repository Kindred Spaces. And if you enjoyed the Modcast and you'd like to have others enjoy it too, please share on social media and give us a rating. It really does help spread the news about the Modcast and the Institute's work. And it helps get the word out about this cutting-edge research and new initiatives and allows people to support the scholars and artists that come on our program. I'm your host, Brenton Dickerson, and I'm here with Technical Director Christy McKinney. Now, let's close with these inspirational words from near the end of Anne of Green Gables, just prior to what I had quoted earlier. The joys of sincere work and worthy aspiration and congenial friendship were to be hers. Nothing could rob her of her birthright of fancy or her ideal world of dreams. And there was always the bend in the road. Farewell.